You are listening to The Interpreter, the podcast of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Lauren Delaney Miller. In this episode, I sit down with Fred Rowe, the mastermind behind Sierra Bright Dot, a fly fishing guide service in the Eastern Sierra. Fred's background in fisheries biology and his exploding enthusiasm for being on the water make this one of my favorite interviews yet. I hope you enjoy the show. All right. Hi, Fred. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. I know you're pretty busy this time of year. Thanks, Lauren. I'm really busy this year. Things are just cooking great. Yeah, I bet. Um, So I wanted to start with a little bit of background. Um, I'm curious where you're from originally and how long you've been in the Eastern Sierra. Well, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I went to Humboldt State, so I lived in Arcata for three years, going to college. Um, Spent a summer in Mammoth in 79 and moved there permanently in 1981. And then I lived 15 years in Mammoth, and now I've been um, pushing... 40 years, the rest down here in Bishop. Awesome. And what brought you here originally? What attracted you to the Eastern Sierra? Well, everybody else comes here for the skiing. I came for the fishing. Um, between my junior and senior year of college, I got a um, fishing job with Mammoth Sporting Goods, which is now where Rick Sports Center is in Mammoth. And I worked for them in the shop, and I taught fly fishing and fly tying. Awesome. Um, And so we mentioned that you've been busy recently, and I imagine that has something to do with what we hear on the east side called fishmas, but I'm not sure if everyone listening is familiar with that term. So I thought you might tell us a little bit about what that is. Okay. Um, Fishmas is going to change a little bit in the future. In the past, the last Saturday in April is when all of our trout waters open up to fishing, and then they close November 15th. But this year, starting in March, California Department of Fish and Wildlife changed a number of the regulations. The biggest thing they did is open up a number of our eastern Sierra waters to year-round fishing. But we still have a major fish miss opportunity where um, a number of our lakes, um, in particular in our area, like a Bishop Creek, it would be South Lake and Sabrina Lake, Crawley Lake, Convict Lake, Rock Creek Lake, um, all the June Lake Loop, Twin Lakes and Mammoth, um, all the Mammoth Lakes, um, Twin Lakes and Bridgeport, all will open regularly like they always have in the past. But all the streams are going to catch and release fishing from November 16th to Friday preceding last Saturday in April. So Fishmas is this big event where everybody hasn't been able to fish for like five, six months, and they all come up for opening weekend, and they camp out and they go fishing. When I first moved up here, my roommate knew nothing about fishing, lived in Crawley, woke up one day, and all of a sudden there's 20,000 people out on the lake where there had been no <laughs> Totally blew them away. I had no idea what it was. So we go from nobody to a normal busy ski weekend. And then you had all the fishermen who are camping up and down and staying in all the lodging places. So Fishmas is this major event that everybody comes up to celebrate the start of the fishing season, which is the last Saturday in April. Awesome. And what makes the east side such a great place to fish? From Lone Pine 
to the Nevada border north of um, Bridgeport. And basically from the White Mountains, Klaus Mountains, up to the border, we have this between the Sierra Divide and the mountain range, we have all these fishing opportunities, tons of lakes and streams that are all stocked with um, trout. So everybody comes up here to go trout fishing. I was just talking to somebody today about how many people now are using social media and realizing the beauty of just little places that you never saw people in the past, let alone people like fishmas that come up and know specific areas that have been coming up for years. Crawley Lake is a perfect example. There are people that come up for opening weekend, which is fishmas, but there are people that come up through the entire fishing season for a week-long trip, specifically on that water, to fish it. And it's just the beauty of the area. The classic statement is trout don't live in ugly places. So every place we have trout, pretty much a gorgeous, great place to fish. Awesome. And what types of fish are we looking for out here? You mentioned trout, but there's a bunch of different kinds I know. So in the trout department, we have um, rainbows um, and cutthroats. The rainbows um, are indigenous on the west side of the Sierras, which you can access by hiking the trailheads and get to. There's golden trout in the Kern Plateau, which are indigenous. And then there are um, Lahontan cutthroat north of Conway Summit that are indigenous. And then everything else, um, all the rest of our sport fish are all introduced species. So we have rainbows, browns, brookies, goldens, cutthroats um, for the trout. And then we have um, bass carp, bluegill, um, both largemouth, smallmouth bass. Um, and then one of my favorite questions to ask people, Conway Summit South, um, east of the Sierra Divide, west of the um, White Mountains, um, like I said, south of Conway Summit, to say um, Lone Pine. What are the four indigenous fish in our area? And the answer is Tui Chubs, Pupfish, Owens River Sucker, and Owens River Days. So all the other fish we're talking about were never in this area. They've all been introduced in the late 1800s and the early 1900s into our area. That's really interesting. And so I did not grow up fishing. And as someone who is new relatively new to the Eastern Sierra, I'm just really learning about the history of stocking. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's pretty counterintuitive to um, what a lot of people think of as the fishing experience, but is pretty important here on the east side, and I imagine in other places. Specifically on the east side, because of what I just defined, that we don't have a lot of wild fish, and with the amount of fishing pressure the area gets during the fishing season, the streams and lakes can't support the number of fish that are being removed out of that fishery without fish being put in. So a hatchery is an area where they're growing trout. And there's a couple terms worth talking about, catchables and subcatchables. Subcatchables are fish that are seven inches 
or smaller down to fry, which are about three to four inches long. And those fish uh, are planted where they're expected to grow up in the area and become big fish, where there's not necessarily a lot of fishing pressure. In most of what we call our roadside waters, which are the ones I've talked about, which are like um, stuff we can drive right up to and fish, like South Lake and Intake 2, um, Sabrina Lake, North Lake in the um, Bishop Canyon area, Rock Creek Lake, um, Crawley Lake, uh, Comic Lake, the Mammoth Lakes, all those kind of waters we can drive up to, get so much fishing pressure that by the first month or two of the season, if they weren't putting fish into the water, there wouldn't be any fish left. So they're removing more fish than the fishery can naturally sus sustain. Which leads us into what I tend to do, which is I'm a fly fisherman, and the bulk of the waters I fish are what they define as wild trout waters. And the brown trout are not um, native to our area. They're stocked and they reproduce very well and have a great wild population in our waters. So it's these areas that we get to fish and they're naturally producing. And so we participate in a thing called catch and release where we catch the fish and let it go so that I catch it and then somebody else can catch it. And there's proper techniques to that. Um, primarily, you want to fight the fish as fast as you can in and get the hook out without taking the fish out of the water and then give it a chance to recover and let it swim away. And so that is in stark contrast to the bulk of our waters, which um, if they weren't stocked, would be devoid of fish by the end of the season because they get so much fishing pressure and because there really are no uh, natural or native trout to our area. That's why we use the hatcheries. And then we're talking about, we're right now in a problem going into 2021. In 2020, the hatcheries, two in the Owens Valley, one down south, got a virus and they had to kill off 3.2 million trout. So those hatcheries are reestablishing their fish population. So we are getting stocking and there are fish in there, but it's going to be two years before the hatchery can be back up into full production mode and supply fish like they have in the past. And I think the other thing to talk about in this um, that's kind of the advantage of the wild fish is that as long as people are catching and releasing, then we have fish to catch. And so we're not dependent on the hatchery fish. And in any kind of agricultural business, whether we're raising chickens, cows, or fish, we occasionally have disease problems, and then that becomes a problem. And then the other problem that we have in our area has to do with some um, an invasive species called New Zealand mud snail. And then the other one is whirling's disease, which is something the trout get. So the hatcheries are limited to where they can plant, depending if they have it. So Hot Creek Hatchery, um, just south of Mammoth, can only stock in New Zealand mud snail positive waters, which is primarily the Owens River system, including Pleasant Valley Reservoir and Crawley Lake. 
So you mentioned that you're primarily a fly fisherman, and I'm wondering if there's something about the terrain here in the Eastern Sierra that's particularly appealing for fly fishermen as opposed to different types of fishing, or if that's just one of the many types of fishing that people enjoy over here. Fly fishing is on the upper echelon of what's going on in the fishing world so that it encompasses a much broader understanding of the entire fishing that we're doing. Um, Not that people don't understand, but as a generality, a lot of trout fishermen who bait fish are just plunking um, bait into the water and just expecting a fish to hit the line without an understanding of actually what it is they're doing and why the fish would be hitting and stuff. And as an example, certain baits are designed to float off the bottom of the lake. So if you just cast out and left the bait on the bottom, it would be in the weeds. The trout would never see it, not feed on it. So we use leaders and float the bait up out of the weeds so the fish can see the bait floating above the weeds in the bottom of the lake and therefore feed on it. So the kind of waters that we as fly fishermen are looking for, most of it are becoming wild trout waters, waters that are not stocked uh, in any consistent basis. It's primarily fish that are reproducing naturally in that stream. The other thing that's going on is it's either something that's kind of hard to fish so that the fishing requires us the skill level to catch the fish. And then certain other waters, they're wide open and um, easy to cast and easy to fish. And then I think thirdly, a number of waters that we fish as fly fishermen have a high density of a trout population. So it's really easy to catch fish. So a water that's kind of hard to fish would be the lower Owens in what they call the wild trout water, which is from Pleasant Valley Reservoir down to five bridges. Um, And most of that water is catch and release. There's a small section during the regular fishing season, which is open to catching two fish and keeping four. Um, And particularly when the river's up around two to 300 CFS, you can't go anywhere in the river and it requires anglers to have a certain skill level to be able to catch the fish out of that body of water. Hot Creek is considered the hardest to fish of all the fly fishing waters in the Eastern Sierras. Um, It's a spring creek. The waters run really clear all year long. They basically have a constant year-round flow and a constant temperature. So it produces huge amounts of a few species of insects. And because of that, then the fish feed selectively on those insects and then those insects um, the fish key in on it and so if i don't have the right size the right color the right shape of the fly the fish will refuse my fly and then the other part that goes hand in hand with hot creek if i can't get what they call a drag free drift which means the fly is floating naturally like every other insect on the water the fish won't feed on it So those two components make Hot Creek really hard to fish, but once you learn how to do it, it makes it really, really easy to fish it. And by definition, that's a classic fly fishing scenario where I have to 
figure out what insect is hatching, what size it is, what actually insect, so I can tie a fly up to look like it. So is it a mayfly? Is it a stonefly? Is it a midge? Is it a caddis? And they all look differently. Um, and then do I have the right size? I might have the right fly, but in too big or too small. So I have to have the exact right size to imitate it. And then I cast it out and let it float down the river. And the idea is to make it float just like every natural insect on the water. And then the fish will take that insect. I set the hook, fight the fish, take the fly out and let it go. And that's a perfect fly fishing scenario of what's going on. And then the upper Owens um, above Crawley Lake to Big Springs is mostly uh, in a meadow section. So there's no trees, no nothing. It's just a wide open meadow area. So you have to kind of watch your approach to the stream, but it makes it a great spot to take beginner fly fishermen to because now you don't have to worry about bushes and trees behind you and you can just concentrate on casting and getting to the fish. And it doesn't have as prolific as a hatches as Hot Creek does, but it still has a number of really good hatches, so it makes it a great fly fishing water. So that's kind of what's going on in our area. And then probably one other one that a group of fly fishers love to do is fish what we call the backcountry, which means you're hiking in for a day or you're taking a backpack and hiking in for an extended number of days to go fishing. And those fisheries, in the high country, generally are great waters to fly fish in. Uh, you can catch numbers of fish, and most of those are um, wild fisheries. A few of them are where they stock subcatchables in them, um, either once a year or once every other year, to sustain the um, fit trout population, depending on how much fishing pressure gets. So that's kind of what we're doing with the fly fishing, is what we call matching the hatch, figuring that out, and then we can fool the fish. And for me as a fly fisherman, the best part is knowing that I've got the right fly with the right drift, and he's taking that fly as if it was any other natural. And then I set the hook and fool the trout. So to me, that's my favorite part of fly fishing, is being able to fool the trout and taking my imitation instead of a natural. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of things to think about it, but I also imagine that's why it kind of seems like fly fishing is having kind of a moment right now. It feels like it's really gaining a lot of steam and popularity, and I wonder if that's because there's this whole other element to it where you've really got to do a lot of preparation and thinking and planning and stuff like that. Well, like I was talking about, where a lot of um, trout fishermen just go to a lake, pop something in the lake, and expect something to happen. As a fly fisherman, we're interested in everything that's affecting the trout. So in the wintertime, in the waters that we have that are year-round fishing, which now most of our streams, rivers, creeks, canals are open to year-round fishing, um, in the middle of winter, the trout doesn't require a lot of calories. So if you don't put the fly right in front of the fish, they won't take it. In the summertime, they're requirement for calories goes up exponentially they'll move sometimes as much as four to six feet to take a fly so obviously summertime's much easier to catch the fish so that's just one of the elements so we're now kind of 
interested in this holistic approach to the trout fishing and interested in everything that it's affecting it. One of the things that I discuss with people all the time is life cycles of insects and which stage of that life cycle of that insect is most vulnerable to predation by trout because that's the stage I want to be on the water for because that's when the fish is going to feed on and that's when I can catch the most fish. So that's kind of part of what I think that's as you grow in your trout fishing, that's the look up to what's going on with fly fishing. Then the other aspect that's going on is uh, several years ago, and I keep seeing things that we're going to get a second movie come out, the Robert Redford movie, A River Runs Through It. Um, and when that came out, that caused a huge expansion into the fly fishing world. Everybody saw the movie and everybody wanted to do it. And then I think the other thing that's fielding fly fishing right now is the fact that of social media and what everybody can see in social media and what people are doing, it's just making everything more open and more accessible to them. And then with COVID and everybody trapped at home, people are really looking to get out and go recreate and do things. And for a lot of people, this holistic approach to trout fishing, which is the essence of fly fishing, is what everybody's doing. Yeah, and well, you have a background in science and fish science, and I wonder if that gives you a particular edge in getting into the minds of those trout. 100% it gives me an edge. Uh, I knew I wanted to fish as a career in some form. So in school, I made sure I took 20 units of environmental engineering. So I have a real good understanding of how the water moves, um, what's going on with that, and therefore how that affects the fish. And then throw in some of the entomology background and the study of the insects and what's going on with them, then that's the other thing. And I just had some clients out yesterday and blew them away. They'd been fishing, fly fishing for a little while, but had never seen something I did. Um, for them. I use a thing called a stomach pump. It looks like a miniature turkey baster. So it's got a little bulb syringe on the end, little plastic tube, fill it full of water, squeeze half the water out, gently slide it down the fish's mouth till it stops. And then you let go of the bulb, pull it out, and the suction pulls out of their stomach what they've been eating recently. So then we take the hook out, revive the fish, and let it go. And then I take the stomach stuff that came up in the tube, which is from their stomach, what they just ate, put it in a dish, and now I can look at exactly what that fish was eating. So I'm no longer guessing. So I can wow. look at it and go, oh, it was eating a blooming olive nymph, and we imitate that with a pheasant tail, and I take a number 18 pheasant tail and set it next to the insect and go, yep, that's the exact imitation, looks just like the actual nymph. Put it online and go out and catch a bunch of fish. So yeah, that's probably my biggest advantage to what I'm doing is I can identify the insects, and then I got into this a little backwards uh, I started out as a fly tire and then learned how to fly fish, which there's probably only a handful of that have done that. Um, so my fly time background allows me to look at the insect, go home, and make a better imitation than anything available 
in the commercial market. So for my clients that fish with me and people that happen to buy flies from me are quite often getting stuff that are tweaked for specific hatches in our area that work really, really well. That is awesome. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your guiding business and what that looks like and um, who a lot of your clientele are and what kind of experience they're getting when they're coming out to the Eastern Sierra, maybe for the first time. Um, Beginners don't understand that it takes a lot to get into fly fishing. So if I can get a hold of them ahead of time, I'll have them get five to 10 hours of casting practice. So that way, when we get them on the river, they can actually cast and get the fly where they want to put it, which means we're going to be able to catch them fish. And it's not that I can't teach casting, but their time is limited on the water. So I want to give them as big an advantage to actually be fishing and not learning how to cast. Because it turns out you, we don't need water to learn how to fly cast. We can learn that in a park. So I recommend a number of people in a number of different cities throughout California. I have people that I know that can teach people casting. So when they come up here, we can take them out on the water and show them how to fish. Um, we kind of talked about there's so much going on with the fly fishing. And a lot of it, you almost need to be able to do it. So it's route, you're not thinking about it, but in the beginning, you have to make the cast. You have to put the line under the finger so you control the line. You have to make sure you're casting the right spot. The wind's blowing the fly line around. Uh, fish are rising, but you have to do all this stuff at once. So that's kind of where I come in, is I help them learn how to do all those things. And then one other thing for the beginners is nobody practices tying knots enough because it's the unsexy part of fly fishing. Nobody wants to take to learn how mm-hmm. to do it. So that's one area that I can tell everybody, including myself, I don't practice knots enough that we all should. Uh, and then basically my guiding business, I've been guiding since 1982. One of the interesting facts with me is 90, 95% of all the fly fishing guides grandfather back to me. They've either worked for me, been taught by me, or have worked or been taught by somebody I did. Um, and then the um, what I do differently than a lot of the guides, it's my ability to teach. And so for me, a successful day isn't catching fish, but it's teaching you the fly fishing techniques that will allow you to go out and catch fish. Um, mm-hmm. So um, on my webpage, I have a line written out, kind of stole it from um, the Peace Corps. You know, the idea of we can go out and catch a fish or I can teach you how to fly fish so you can fish for a lifetime. And so that's pretty much how I'm teaching my clients. And then my clientele ranges pretty much across everything from um, successful, what I would call businessman type stuff, down to blue collar workers. Uh, that are doing it. In the beginning, it was mostly uh, businessmen we were getting, and I was getting a lot of dentists and firemen because they had a lot of free time. And now it seems like I'm getting just a good cross-section of people from a, you know across the board. I think one other answer to all this, we see it come up in a lot of areas. Um, what I can do for you as a guide is kind of the question you need to ask. 
It's not that I'm fishing with you today or that I fished yesterday. It's how much I fished last week, the week before, the week before that. It's how much we know. And in a big sense of comment, I tell my clients all the time, wisdom comes from experience and experience comes from failure. So I'm making sure that you don't make all the mistakes that I've made so that you don't have to go through all those mm-hmm. problems so that you come up quicker into the fly fishing field. Um, so that's kind of the big advantage of hiring a guide is that we're on the water all the time. I fish 150 to 200 days a year in the Eastern Sierra. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm also wondering how people that are coming here to fish or maybe local people who fish can, what they can do to help um, be good stewards of the environment that they're in. Are there things that they can do to help prevent some of these diseases that we talked about? Are there any kind of conservation issues? Okay, so right off the bat, that puts us into invasive species. If you have a boat and you're putting it on Crawley Lake, they're going to check your boat for the um, zebra and quagga mussel, which is a big problem. If it gets in the lake, it's going to have some major issues. Uh, the other one I talked about earlier is the New Zealand mud snail, and that's in a number of our waters. And that one, um, it has um, the ability to live out of the water um, in dry conditions for up to 30 days. The other thing, if you fish one water that's positive and then go fish another water that isn't, and you fish it in the same day, you can transport it. So when you're fishing from one water to another, the best thing you can do is freeze your equipment overnight. And I know most people can't do this, but if you're going to fish multiple waters in a day, specifically, you know, one is uh, positive from New Zealand mud snails and one isn't. have extra equipment to fish so you don't use contaminated equipment. But for most stuff, if you can freeze your equipment overnight, that's the best thing you can do. Um, There's a few vegetation things going on that people are spreading and not being aware of. That's another issue. And then I think the biggest issue right now in our area is we're being loved to death by people. We're seeing it in the fishing waters. We're seeing it in the climbing areas. We're just seeing it in places where people hike. People need to learn how to go to the bathroom in the wild. Uh, in particular, the big issue there is what to do with toilet paper. In the last year, I cannot tell you, just in the fishing waters I deal with, how much toilet paper is everywhere because people don't know what to do with it. Um, another issue is just flat-out trash. Um, I fish a number of waters a couple times a week, the same waters over and over again. Every week, I'm pulling trash out of the same area. Two days ago, it was clean. Today, it's got a ton of trash in it. Clean it up. Three days later, it's full of trash. Um, What I don't understand in all this, you wouldn't leave trash in your house. Why are you leaving trash out where you're recreating? And more importantly, you're coming up here for this pristine area. Why are you trashing it? You want it pristine? Keep it that way. So um, to steal a line from somebody else, treat this area like it's your home. Treat this area like your guests visiting here and take care of it because it belongs to somebody. And that, to me, is the biggest thing we can do. Clean up after yourself. When I'm on guide trips, the last thing I do is police the area to make sure 
We haven't left anything. And in particular, on occasion, we have clients that leave rods on top of cars or rods leaned up against a uh, bush and try to drive away. Those are all the things that I think that are really important to people. And then we were just talking about something today. The other thing I'd say goes kind of with all this. If you find something, turn it in. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody actually lost a rod, put it up on one of the Facebook sites, and there was already a thread on there, found rod. He's listing the rod. Yeah, that was the rod. The guy got the rod back. So that was awesome. So that's the other thing. You know, if you do find some, let everybody know about it. Awesome. And before we wrap up, I was wondering if you might just want to share with us a favorite moment or two from this year already, since I know you've been out on the water so much. Definitely one um, that one that really stands out. Uh, I was out with a guy, and we were nymphing and catching a bunch of fish. And the hatch is where the insect goes from being aquatic to the adult. And in this case, the mayfly sits on the surface and floats along till its wings dry and it flies off. So we're using called a parachute pattern and he made a perfect cast upstream and it's floating down and the fish comes up and just sucked it right off the surface. And I go, set it. And he goes, set what? He never saw the hit, but I saw it. And it was just the perfect, perfect cast fish took it perfectly and then he never set the hook so that was kind of a great moment that was kind of funny and sad all at the same time and then i think a second great moment for me is a combination of how many clients i've had out for the first time who've caught their first fish um, i had a guy last saturday uh, who's been fishing for just a little bit and finally caught fish and then the next day went out and caught a bunch of all on his own so that to me is probably my favorite scenario is guide people that then go out on their own and are successful and i don't think it gets any better than that right there that is awesome um well i hope i can get out with you someday here soon and start to expand my repertoire of eastern sierra sports well hopefully we can get you out there um like i said it takes uh, five or ten hours of casting practice and then we can get out and start fishing and the real nice part of living in this area is the fact that we have so much water around us and some of it's only five ten minutes away so there's tons of places to actually get out and go fish and when you're ready, I'm more than happy to take you out there and go teach you how to do some fly fishing. All right. Uh, Fred, well, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation, and I've certainly learned a lot. A huge thanks to Fred Bro for being on our show today. You can find out more about Fred on his website, sierrabright.com. This podcast is a production of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association partnering with the Forest Service to protect the Sierra Nevada for over 50 years. To learn more about our organization and to support programs like this podcast through annual memberships, visit sierraforever.org. Until next time, I'm Lauren Delaney Miller.